and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. Have you abandoned your New Year's resolutions or did you keep expectations low so as not to disappoint? Either way, we are here for you and hopefully we will not disappoint. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. All right. From Wired, we have the story of how scientists settled a century-old family drama using DNA from postcards. Hmm. Hmm. So in 1885, a young Austrian blacksmith named Xaver left home to make it big. He found a new job abroad and fell in love with Dina, who was the 17-year-old Catholic Jewish daughter of his boss. Ah. Yeah. He was totally fired, but that was just the start (laughs) of this family drama. Dina subsequently ran away from home to be with Xaver and found lodging and work in the home of Ron, a 30-year-old Jewish factory owner. And in 1887, which is two years from when we started the clock on all this, she gave birth to a son named Rank, believed to be fathered by Ron. Oh, no. Yeah. So Rank received Jewish rituals and he was baptized in a Catholic church, I suppose, like his Jewish Catholic mother, best of both worlds. Right. Anyway, Dina and Xaver remained married. And after Xaver finally got some success going in his career, then they married in 1889. Xaver acknowledged the then one-and-a-half-year-old Rank as his stepson, and Ron lent support to the family, which is kind of vague, but my guess is some money or, you know, watch the kids when they go on a cruise, whatever. (laughs) Well, you know, maybe cruises were around back then. It may not have been as COVID-y. Anyway, Xaver and Dina went on to have three more children, including a son named Arles, and the secret of his paternity was maintained publicly for years, but among the family... The true identity of Rank's father was passed down from generation to generation. So, okay, let's fast forward to May 2017, when Cordula Haas, a forensic geneticist at the University of Zurich, Switzerland, was approached with a weird request. Rank and Arl's descendants wanted to verify that Ron was indeed Rank's true father. The family basically said, take our cheek swabs, send them to DNA analysis, and at the prompting of Haas, some postcards that had been sent by Rank and Ron that might hold their DNA and the remnants of the saliva used to paste the stamps. And what they found was a common Y chromosomal lineage, which meant Xaver, not Ron, was Rank's dad. They were all his. (laughs) So with the consent of the family, the scientists detailed their investigation in a paper. And while it seems like this is just kind of like a ha-ha footnote to a family mystery, Extracting century-old DNA from artifacts was once considered the next big thing in genetic genealogy, and obviously private companies have been trying to get in on the hustle. Mm -hmm. But what we once thought of as an explosion in artifact testing has kind of turned into more of a slow burn, and a lot of factors have kept it from getting as big as the commercial DNA test kits. Number one, it's costly. You basically have to tamper with or destroy a family heirloom Mm -hmm. like a postcard or a stamp. And there's not always a guarantee it's going to work, right? 
but the practice might turn out to be more useful to answer predetermined specific questions. Like right. in the case of rank and arls, we have a question that's not open-ended, and that makes it a little bit more easy. But as genetic genealogy is starting to unravel more and more family mysteries, it bears repeating, it can also open big cans of worms, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, do the dead deserve any privacy? They can never consent to the testing, right? <laughs> like, the idea that you can take the DNA of someone who lived in a time before cars, like, mm -hmm. it's very science fiction. Yeah, and we're also catching a lot of murderers. Like, who's to say we don't actually find out that great-grandpa Arles was actually a serial killer and left all <laughs> of this blood? I mean, you know, we're, we're catching a lot of different things with DNA testing now. Yep. Even though these cheap spit kits are super popular, we're basically in the midst of an enormous social experiment, right? Yeah. Like people who discover that their own genetic origins aren't what they thought are often traumatized. Yeah, but sometimes you also find out that your father-in-law wasn't the father of your baby. So, you know, <laughs> sometimes it works out. And it's true. And it also works even in the case of the royals. There was a case a few years ago where the death of a Belgian royal, King Albert I, who was the third king of the Belgians, died under mysterious circumstances after he supposedly fell off a rock while exercising. Okay, fair. Sounds <laughs> a little sus. Mm. But because there were no witnesses to the accident, there were tons of conspiracy theories that he'd been murdered, the accident was staged. And so, you know, obviously, many years later, using blood-stained leaves that had been collected from the scene, <laughs> this scientist and his colleagues compared it with the DNA of two of the king's living relatives and discovered, yes, this blood did belong to Albert I. So it goes both ways. Perhaps make pace with a little bit of blissful ignorance if things are going okay. No need to rock the boat. I may or may not be speaking from personal experience, but uh, <laughs> not in a way that has been traumatic for me, but certainly uh, not what we expected. Wow. Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from ec.europa.eu. And it's titled, Bottling the Smell of Happiness to Help Treat Depression. Huh. So our bodies produce different scents when we feel happy or afraid. And these so-called chemo signals, which are in fact odorless, are believed to trigger happiness or fear in others. Enzo Pascale Salingo, a professor at the Department of Information Engineering at the University of Pisa, Italy, says it's like an emotional contagion. If I feel fear, my body odor will be smelt by people around me, and they may start to feel fear themselves, unconsciously. Mm. He also says that similarly, the smell of happiness can inspire a positive state in other people. He hopes scientists can produce one within a few years, and this could be particularly important in the aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic, with cases of depression rising, especially among young people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just like pump it through as you're doom scrolling Twitter and Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Like if Facebook were to implement that. Oh boy, yeah, just hook it up to the metaverse and uh, really, <laughs> put it right in, in my a... nostrils. <laughs> oh, anyways, he says, uh, I don't want to say having this spray will cure people, but I think it's a very beautiful contribution. And he is coordinating a project called Potion, which is researching these chemo signals. The researchers use videos to induce fear or happiness in people and then collect their sweat to analyze <laughs> which chemical compounds are released with each emotion. Wow. Which... It's a job. You know, 
Yeah, it's a little Monsters, Inc., right? Like they're deliberately making <laughs> yeah. you scared and then they're just harvesting. But, you know, you may also find like super donors. Like, you know, they're mm-hmm. those people who they donate blood and it turns out they have some special thing in there that like makes them a much more valuable donor. There may be mm-hmm. people who are just like sweating happiness constantly and you could just harvest those individuals and they can make a lot of money, you know, good for them. <laughs> Yeah. The question is, do they have any happiness left after all of that? Oh, maybe it's draining. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So eventually, fear odors and people's responses to them could be used to help psychiatrists understand more about different aspects of phobias and depression, and happiness odors could be used to help in treatment. Hmm. In mammals, the sense of smell is uniquely linked to the part of the brain associated with emotions and the creation of memories, says Dr. Lisa Rue, researcher at the Interdisciplinary Institute for Neuroscience in France. Smell is important for recognition between people. A mother can recognize the smell of her child, for example, and this may be an important part of bonding. She says, we humans use our sense of smell more than we think. It's more unconscious and a little bit taboo. We're not very comfortable with it. But there's more and more evidence that smell is important in social behaviors. The first region of the brain which processes chemo signals, the olfactory bulb, is directly connected to the limbic system, which controls the ability to identify another individual, the formation of memories, and manages emotional responses. All other senses, taste, hearing, sight, and touch, are processed by other regions of the brain before being linked to the limbic system. Hmm. And the sense of smell is linked to pleasure and depression, possibly because of its unique link to the limbic system. Up to a third of people with a defective sense of smell experience symptoms of depression, according to a research paper published in 2014. Hmm. This may be partly because of their lost sense of taste and concerns about personal hygiene and social interactions, but it is also likely that olfactory loss affects the brain's functioning and in particular its emotional control. Yeah, well, and I read a thing as well that was once about how if you looked at the immune systems of the people that women said, oh, that guy smells good to me or that's the guy I choose their immune system was most different from theirs. So it was like combining Mm. the two would give you the best outcome, theoretically. Wild. And I know we're only starting all of this like microbiome research, but wouldn't that be crazy to think about how much of our own quote unquote attraction and free will of desires Mm -hmm. being driven by like our colonies and (laughs) galaxies of bacterium? Yeah, no, we're bags of chemicals. I've come to accept that for sure. (laughs) The other side of this too is, you know, if you're not getting along so well in social situations, maybe try some perfume or something. Right. Because apparently mm-hmm. it matters more than you think. Yeah, and not 100%. just in a you might be smelly sort of way. That's right. More than just a shower. Yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Well, we are very much on a theme. Spoiler alert. I have two articles today that are sort of opposite sides of the same coin. They both have to do with the power that our mental state has over our physical body. Mm. So This first one we're going to talk about covers the darker, more morbid side of the coin. It's called Inside Psychogenic Death, the Phenomenon of Thinking Yourself to Death. Oh, dear. Yeah. Wow. So we start with an (laughs) anecdote. I feel triggered. I'm sorry, but go on. (laughs) So we start with an anecdote from 1967 when a 22-year-old woman was admitted to Baltimore City Hospital complaining about shortness of breath, chest pains, nausea, and dizziness. They ran dozens of tests and could basically find nothing wrong with her other than what appeared to be an ongoing panic attack that simply would not stop. And after two weeks in the hospital, she finally reluctantly explained to the doctors what she thought was wrong with her. She said that she had been born on a Friday the 13th in this backwoods swamp in rural Florida 
And the midwife who had delivered her and two other babies that night told the parents that all three babies had been hexed. (gasps) She predicted (laughs) that the first girl would die before her 16th birthday, the second would die before her 21st, and the third, namely this woman in the hospital, would die before she turned 23. (gasps) And, you know, while that alone she might have written off as nonsense, she said that because they shared a birthday and lived in the area, she knew the other two girls. And the first had indeed died in a car wreck the day before her 16th birthday. And then the second girl had been out celebrating her 21st birthday at a bar when a fight broke out, a gun went off, and she was also killed. Stop. Wow. So this woman in the hospital was nearing her 23rd birthday, and she was 100% convinced that she was going to die. And... Sure enough, despite the fact that there was nothing physically wrong with her, the woman's condition got worse and worse until she just up and died for basically no reason on the day before her 23rd birthday. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, there are tons of other examples of this in the medical literature, especially in cases where someone is diagnosed with a terminal illness and they suddenly go from being ignorant and outwardly healthy to dead just days later, even though it should have taken months or even years for the illness to kill them. There have even been some cases in which the original diagnosis was a mistake and there was literally nothing wrong with these people, but the hopelessness still killed them. Oh, my gosh. So this sort of thing had always fascinated researcher John Leach, who calls himself a survival psychologist and has spent 20 years studying the phenomenon to try to isolate the exact biological mechanism by which our brains can just shut everything down. He actually started his career by studying the survivors of prison camps, shipwrecks, and other disasters, trying to figure out what gave these survivors some sort of extraordinary, defiant will to live. But he eventually realized that the survivors were completely normal, and the real question was what was happening inside the brains of the people who didn't make it. Mm. So, you know, it was a career's worth of research, but long story short, in 2016, he homed in on the relationship between the prefrontal cortex and the basal ganglia, which is one of the sources of dopamine in the brain. He says that while psychologists had established the neurochemical concept of fight or flight back in the 1940s, in which you get big dumps of adrenaline or norepinephrine, in recent years they've added a third mental state known as freeze. And in the case of freeze, what's happening is that the brain sees the threat as inescapable through either fight or flight, and it therefore lowers brain activity across the board to conserve energy and have a better chance of surviving whatever's about to happen. And we see this happen outwardly in the form of shock, right? The Mm -hmm. victim isn't really thinking clearly or being responsive. And it's because everything non-critical to survival has been shut down, not just emotionally, but chemically. Wow. And part of this is that the prefrontal cortex forces the basal ganglia to stop producing dopamine because we don't need that stuff right now. And Leach's big breakthrough was realizing that in these cases where people lose all hope of survival, their brain never perceives that the threat has passed. And so their dopamine production never starts back up again. (gasps) And we do fundamentally need dopamine to survive. Mm -hmm. All of which is great news for people who are suffering from the hopelessness of a new diagnosis or, say, a midwife's curse, because (laughs) we already have a ton of FDA-approved medications developed for Parkinson's disease that can increase dopamine production. Theoretically, we could just give them a little dopamine boost and they wouldn't feel so hopeless or they would survive when, you know, they're just shutting down for no reason. More broadly, however, it also has implications for treatment-resistant depression. Dr. David Kissane at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York says depression is actually a loss of happiness in the here and now 
while demoralization, which leads to what Leach is calling disexistential syndrome, is future-oriented. And because they're chemically different, even an SSRI that helps the immediate depression will not necessarily solve the dopamine problem of demoralization, such that a depressed person might think, yes, I'm happy now, but I'll inevitably get depressed again, and they never really make it out of that cycle even Mm -hmm. when the drugs are working. So, you know, it's possible in the coming years we'll see treatment-resistant depression being looked at through this new lens, and it might even get to the point where any major diagnosis automatically includes a dopamine prescription just to make sure you don't give up right away. I mean, it also, yeah, it puts a lot into the whole think positive thing, which is such a boring mantra, but something that you continually hear from people who have had chronic illness go into remission or cancer survivors, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Well, and the big question is, do they say mind over matter because they keep their dopamine? And so it's very easy for them, whereas someone Mm -hmm. who's lost all their dopamine, they don't have the ability to think positively because they literally don't have the ability. I've seen those Tumblr memes as well. You know, the fact that toxic positivity is a term and can exist, (laughs) I think absolutely points to that. That's right. Stop being so positive, y'all. God. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. Sticking with our super theme, we're going to talk about super poo with the Guardian. So the emerging science of stool transplants and designer gut bacteria. Poop point oh. Are you ready for this? (laughs) Man, we are on a theme today. This is hilarious. (laughs) Well, it's the new year and I'm sure our bodies have all been through the ringer of a... uh... We're all focused on ways to overcome depression. It's so weird. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and maybe our poop's not right. Who knows? Is it a theme? Yeah, I mean, at this point, I'm ready to just get some guys sweat and just go to town, you know? That's it. This is the hope we need for a tomorrow in which we survive, (laughs) y'all. But more and more people are, in fact, turning to fecal transplants. And there are health benefits. Uh, Researchers in Adelaide are harnessing the power of high-quality poo in new treatments that can be swallowed. So we've heard of this kind of thing before, right? Where Mm -hmm. you have crystallized fecal donors to repopulate gut bacteria. And even to use a term Jennifer brought up earlier, good poo donors are so hard to find, they are called unicorns. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The poo unicorns. These elusive, healthy creatures surface a market for fecal transplants that is growing rapidly as evidence of the benefits just continues to mount. We have not only bacteria, but we've got fungi, we've got viruses, and even more things that make up this microbiome. And this collective genetic material performs all kinds of functions on our behalf, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad, right? They can affect our mood, they can affect our immunity, our physical and mental health, as we've even talked about in this episode. So the transfer of healthy stool into the gastrointestinal tract of an unhealthy recipient has been proven to treat people with intestinal conditions, including the C. diff superbug, which can cause diarrhea, sepsis, and even death. If you've mm-hmm. never seen Tig Nataro's stand up in which she talks about her experience with C. diff, um, it'll paint quite the picture. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but as we continue to understand how the microbiome improves, the possibilities of fecal transplants are expanding. And so now 
Researchers are working on a super stool, which is a poo pellet you can eat that mimics a so-called unicorn's special abilities. I don't know how that sentence made it to publication on the Guardian, but I'm so glad it did. <laughs> <Yeah> . So what they're trying to do is replicate the unicorns. Biobank's office is located on a hub on the suburbs of Adelaide. They have a special donor room. Yes, it's a glorified toilet. Where poo yeah, donations yeah. are received, there's a lab with an anaerobic workstation where donors' drains are put into a, their quoted words, not mine, secret sauce to grow. Oh. I know, I know. I'm sorry, <laughs> all, but it was in the article. Put them into a secret sauce to grow and then isolate the strains. And then they catalog and categorize the strains for future use. So there's hmm. a long list of requirements if you want to be a poop donor. I'm sure it sounds like the easiest job in the world. I'm pooping on the company's dime. They're paying me to poop. <laughs> Listen, you have to be healthy, obviously. You have to be screened for infections. You need to supply a detailed history of medical, travel, and antibiotic history. And if you make it all the way through the assessments, you're enrolled for an eight-week program where you have to show up on time, then <clears throat> make a deposit inside a special room. And if there aren't enough unicorns, well, that's why Biome Bank is trying its best to replicate the contents of a unicorn's guts. They are building a poo factory. <laughs> They're building mm -hmm. libraries of the very best that poo has to offer. And then you put it in that bespoke bacterial recipe in a capsule that somebody else swallows. So it's kind of like mm -hmm. a little algorithm, a little customized poop capsule. <laughs> yeah, no, if we can synthesize this thing, that's really the key. Because like you said, even a unicorn, there's only so many times they can poop in an eight-week period. <laughs> exactly. But if you're able to isolate those bacterium and let them flourish and feed them and help them grow and figure out exactly what ratios they should be in the mix with other bacteria that yes. go well with them, that's really the key. Is, it's is game changer to yeah. And, yeah and to customize that for a person's deficiencies and what they're sick about and you're right mm. finding those super donors is really difficult only about three percent of people qualify yeah i'll tell you right now i do not qualify for sure <laughs> i have way too much illness in my background like never gonna happen right but sign me up for the waiting list on bespoke poop capsules i mean <laughs> yeah i mean it's artisanal feces you know that's what we're talking about here yeah i i do it fresh I don't have a farm to to, to uh, farm to table to <laughs> yeah i don't know if it's table i don't know if it's a farm but next link next link this article comes to us from hakai magazine it's titled how dead whales seem to connect deep sea life Ooh. so we're gonna continue with this theme of you know death and body stuff and and all that so <laughs> yeah. let's keep going on board um, <laughs> frank worth says you cannot study in any university how to sink a whale you just have to be creative <laughs> <laughs> On a regular day, Worth runs Pico Sport, a whale watching company in the Azores. But on this unusual summer day in 2015, Worth is on a chartered sand barge off the coast of Fayal Island, Portugal, guiding his team as they attach specially molded weights to the flukes of a dead juvenile sperm whale. Aww. He says, you have to lift these 500 kilogram blocks one by one, and you never know when you reach the point that the whale goes down. Finally, after the 16th block, 8 tons, the whale starts to sink. 
It stands up on its end, just like the Titanic says work, exactly (laughs) like you see in the Leonardo DiCaprio movie, lets out a big belch and disappears. He adds, you don't want to know what that smells like. (laughs) It's not a happy smell. (laughs) in case anyone is tempted to eat that as a biologic, probably not. Um, Worth was pulled away from his day job when he was approached by the British Broadcasting Corporation. The BBC was filming Blue Planet 2, and the documentary team wanted help sinking the body of a juvenile sperm whale to the seafloor 760 meters below the surface. The sunken whale offered one of the most impressive shots in the Blue Planet series. But now, years later, follow-up research on the carcass has brought scientists closer to understanding how life colonizes the deep. So, life on the seafloor is sparse. Most known deep-sea life concentrates around key sites like hydrothermal vents, seamounts, and cold seeps that are separated by hundreds of kilometers of cold, dark, nutrient-sparse desert. Remarkably, despite the vast distances, organisms seem able to disperse from hotspot to hotspot. One possible explanation is that they use whale falls as way stations, stepping stones of abundance in the darkness. To study the value of these decaying rest stops, the BBC team reached out to Daphne Cuvlier and her colleagues at the University of the Azores. The whale Worth and his team were sinking offered a unique opportunity. Previously, scientists had sunk cow carcasses off the coast of Portugal, humpback whale bones near Brazil, and alligators in the Gulf of Mexico, but no one had ever sunk a carcass for science in the middle of the Atlantic (laughs) Ocean. Sorry, it sounds like some kind of frat bet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is just, you know, the scientist hazing ritual, really. That's right. That's what for, this is the marine biologist hazing ritual, I should say. So within just 25 minutes of the whale hitting the bottom, an attached camera recorded the revival of the first scavenger, an enormous six-gill shark. The hmm. next day, during the first dive of Lula 1000, a submersible operated by the Rebikoff Nigeler Foundation, several other sharks joined the feeding frenzy. The sharks attacked and pushed against the submersible, perhaps to ward off the perceived competition. Mm. It was one of the best diving moments we've ever had, said Kirsten Jacobson, the camera person of Lula 1000, who has more than 20 years of diving experience. We're sitting inside, and there are these big sharks coming up and bouncing against the window, checking us out with really big eyes. At the bottom, the team filmed and sampled the now-exposed skeleton of the whale, picked clean by the creatures of the deep. Polychaete worms were searching for the last pieces of flesh on the bones, and a few stray crabs were crawling around. The carcass also acquired an eerie black halo as the decomposing tissue depleted the oxygen in the surrounding sediment. And years on, Cuvier and her team's analysis of the denizens of this deliberately sunken whale have revealed a potential overlap between the polychaete worm species that colonized the cow bones off Portugal and the whale bones near Brazil, suggesting that a dead whale in the mid-Atlantic could indeed be a stepping stone connecting the two sides of the ocean. Mauricio Shima Bukuro, a researcher at the University of Southern Denmark who is not involved in the study, says that to confirm the finding, Cuvillier and her team will need to collect some of the worms and study their DNA. Shima Bukuro says, For the tiny animals that live in whale bones, the morphological traits to identify species are sometimes tricky. There are a lot of cryptic species that look the same but genetically are different. And Cuvillier wants to fill this gap too. She also hopes to deploy more whale bones to sample and identify more deep-sea organisms. But that work is dependent on shoring up enough funding or hitching another ride with the BBC. Or just get a whale and sink it. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, yep. how hard could it be to find a whale? Don't question how it died. Just oh. <laughs> oh, not this is such a bad know. idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not advocating whale murder for the record. I'm just saying if you had a dead whale, like have you ever seen that video where they blow up the dead whale and it goes very, very badly? And wow. now they've yes. just like blown whale guts on everybody and mm -hmm. the dead whale's still there. Yep. If they had sunk it... They could have, you know, got some science out of it instead of a viral video that's going to last yeah. forever. And I mean, at the end of the day, you know, that would fling the whale stuff really far. It's like you're fertilizing the deep sea. There you go. Oh, my god. That's how I'm thinking of it. It's a lot of little rest stops. You're helping is what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. Well, as promised, here's the more uplifting half of my neurochemical twofer. This one's from the BBC, and it's called Awe. The little earthquake that could free your mind. Aw. Yeah. Hmm. Admittedly, on the surface, it seems like a pretty Rick Romero kind of article. Like, oh, you mean if I see <laughs> stuff that makes me happy, I'll feel better about my life? But this one includes a lot of really cool and really specific studies on what precisely defines being in awe of something and how it affects us differently than joy, pride, amusement, or gratitude. Hmm. hmm. So Michelle Shioda, a professor of social psychology at Arizona State University, was one of the first researchers to isolate and study the benefits of awe, which is defined as the wonder that we feel when we encounter something that we can't easily explain. And most people will often think of being awed by the great outdoors, right? The Grand Canyon, the Aurora Borealis. But of course, we can also feel awe at science on the microscopic level or the miracle of birth or great works of art or this mm -hmm. podcast, you know, all of that. <laughs> so yeah. in one of her studies, Shiota first showed participants one of three videos, an awe-inspiring film about the scale of the universe, a heartwarming film about a figure skater winning an Olympic medal, or a neutral film about how to build a cinder block wall. She then tested all the participants' memories by having them listen to a five-minute story and immediately answer questions about what they just heard. And sure enough, people who had watched the awe-inspiring film performed significantly better on the memory test. Shiota theorized that this is because the brain is constantly forming predictions of what will happen in the future, and we tend to ramp up that behavior as our environment becomes more familiar to us meaning we start making more and more guesses and start mm. paying less and less actual attention to the world around us. Yep. And awe-inspiring experiences, she believes, fully confound our expectations and create a, quote, little earthquake that sort of resets our minds and makes us pay more attention to what is actually in front of us. Beginner's mind is what we call it in yoga, right? Where yeah, there like you go. Exactly. Try to approach something as, you're, as if you're seeing it and experiencing it for the first time. Right. And that's what a lot of people say, like, oh, man, when I had kids, I'm suddenly seeing things mm. like they see it. Mm -hmm. You know, like a flower mm -hmm. was just a dumb flower. But now it's like, oh, my God, that <laughs> child is totally entranced by that flower. And I get to sort of receive some yeah. of that. Another study by Alice Chirico at the Catholic University of the Sacred Heart in Italy found that participants who took a walk through a huge virtual reality forest scored higher on tests of original thinking than participants who watched a video about hens in the grass. And a team led by Paul Piff at the University of California found that participants who watched a short clip of the BBC's Planet Earth series made more altruistic choices in something called the dictator game compared to people <laughs> who had watched funny clips of animals instead. So they're doing a really good job of saying like, yeah, they're both about animals, but this one is cute and adorable and funny. And this one is like, oh, my God, I'm so tiny and meaningless in the universe. Mm -hmm. 
And it makes a difference. Yeah, it's a perspective check versus a perspective reinforcement. Mm -hmm. So yet another group of researchers decided to be sneakier about the whole thing. They took their students on a walk through a grove of Tasmanian eucalyptus trees, which grow to more than 200 feet tall. As the students were contemplating the splendor of their surroundings, the researchers would accidentally drop a pen they were carrying and make note of whether each student tried to pick it up for them. And sure enough, they found that the participants were more helpful during the awe-inspiring forest walk than ones who had instead spent their time contemplating a tall, but kind of ugly and not very majestic building. That's according <laughs> to the article. <laughs> There's no picture of the building, and I would not presume to judge its beauty. Oh, but, but we can all picture a big, tall, ugly building. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the cynic in me notes that they basically, the only thing they specifically recommend is BBC's Planet Earth series. And this article did come from the BBC. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt. Maybe. <laughs> but there are so many different kinds of, you know, PBS and Nova. They have so mm -hmm. many. Uh, I'm going to turn into such an old Austin hippie resident here. Support your local PBS. <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for this week. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include... Lion bones are popping up in some very unexpected places. What a shipwreck's tree rings reveal. And women, 32% more likely to die after operation by male surgeon, study reveals. So, you know, keep it with the death theme. Go check that one out. Check out all the other articles we talk about and find a lot more on daminteresting.com. If you'd like to support our podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash daminterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisberg Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.